Hello and good evening. Happy Tuesday. This is your weekly GradCast. My name is Iman Chen. I'll be one of your hosts tonight. And I'm joined by my co-host, Nicole Poznov. Hi, Nicole. Hello. Hey. And our guest today, uh, very lucky to get her less than 24 hours before she runs away for field work, we have Becky Goodwin. How are you, Becky? I'm doing okay, other than stressed about leaving. Okay. <laughs> when are you leaving? 5 a.m. tomorrow morning. <laughs> wow. And for reference, this is 6 p.m. on Tuesday. So literally, that's what, like less than 12 hours. I'm kind of real close. <laughs> and tell us, where are you going? Um, I work in the Western Arctic. So tomorrow I'll arrive in Yellowknife. I'll be there for two days. And then I head up to Inuvik, which is a small community on the Western Canadian Arctic in the Northwest Territories. Very cool. And what are you going to be doing up there? Um, I'm an anthropologist, archaeologist, so I'm going to be up there doing some interviews with some community members there and helping out with an on-the-land camp with some youth from the high schools around in the different communities. Okay, so doing interviews. Now, um, correct me if I'm wrong, I probably <laughs> am. Uh, when, when I hear archaeologists, mm-hmm. like the first thing sorry, that comes to my mind is Indiana Jones, mm-hmm. uh, who I have heard is uh, quite a terrible archaeologist. Mm-hmm. Um, could you tell us a little bit about what's the relationship between archaeology and anthropology and like what what is that field? <laughs> yeah, actually, that's a really common kind of question or common misconception. Um, and it's different in North America than it is in Europe and in the UK. So I think mm-hmm. that kind of confuses people. But in North America, anthropology um, has four fields, which includes archaeology, linguistic anthropology, uh, physical anthropology, and um, uh, sociocultural anthropology. Mm-hmm. And we all do different things. We're all interested in people, um, just different aspects of people and of culture. Um, archaeologists study past peoples, um, usually the things they leave behind, including their, their objects, their, their houses, their bones and their teeth, things like that. Um, and so that's what archaeology is traditionally. You dig things up and you try to learn about people from that. Um, mm-hmm. But my work and the project I'm on, we kind of straddle that line a little bit. And we work with living communities and get information from them and figure out what they want us to find out about the past. And we kind of work together. So I get to use a little bit of sociocultural anthropology in what I do. Cool. And so which one do you like better? Ooh. <laughs> Are you trying to blacklist me here? <laughs> um, it's hard to say. I love archaeology and I love digging things up, but I find a lot of meaning in working with the communities that we work with. And I'm just interested in doing the kind of work that is is useful to communities we work with and is meaningful to them. And also I get to hang out with people all day and like eat cool food and you know, talk to people. So it's really enjoyable. Um, there's a lot more immediacy to doing some of the work I do now than there was before. That's a very diplomatic answer. So, <laughs> so, sort of both. Yeah, sort of both. They're, they're not different things. They really are kind of together. And we're trying to expand the definition of what archaeology is because um, we think it'll make for better archaeology if we bring in, you know, methods from other um, subdisciplines or other disciplines entirely. You know, we work with geographers, we work with geologists, other scientists, you know. We're not above borrowing and sharing. <laughs> <laughs> so you're going up into the Canadian Arctic. Yes. Um, so who are these people that you are going to be working with and, and researching? Mm-hmm. So um, I study the Thule Inuit, who are the ancestors of all um, modern Inuit, um, including those in Canada. Mm-hmm. How and would I, you spell that? Uh, t- that's a great question, actually. <laughs> T-H-U-L-E-I-N-U-I-T. So it looks like Thule, but it's Thule, which I think is... A Danish word comes from Ultimate Thule, which is a place in Greenland. 
Um, you probably see like on trucks they have like Thule like cabs on the top. Uh. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, so okay. that's where that comes from. Uh, but I specifically work in the Western Canadian Arctic with the Inuvialuit, who are the Inuit of the Western Canadian Arctic. And um, while they are Inuit, they consider themselves um, a separate, unique culture, like many Inuit communities do. And they have, you know, their own languages. They have their own culture. They have different songs and dances. And so they're Inuit, but they're not just Inuit. They are Inuvialuit. Um, so yeah. Very awesome. So uh, when you go up there, like, do you talk to just families, a specific group of people? Who would you target? Yeah, so um, I work with uh, elders and knowledge holders. Um, and like in many indigenous communities, the elders are the people um, within Inuvialuit communities who have the ability to hold and share cultural knowledge. They are the teachers. Um, a knowledge holder I work with, Boogie Pokiak, said to me that um, – Elders are the teachers and their culture is like their textbook. And so mm. if I want to learn um, about a new Vialic culture, I have to go directly to the source rather than reading about it in books by other archaeologists or other anthropologists. I think I think Boogie's right about that. Um, and the reason I focus mostly on elders and knowledge holders, and knowledge holders here is a word I use to mean people who hold a lot of knowledge but aren't old enough to be elders or like uh. wouldn't consider themselves elders, <laughs> um, but they have a lot of knowledge themselves. Um, the reason I go to them is because I'm interested in um, kind of looking at a span of information, like what do they remember from their childhoods, what stories do they have from the past, as well as how do they see um, how things have changed now to kind of look at this, this cross-section of, of their lives. Um, and also because they're the ones with the information and, you know, I can't, I can't ask young people about some of those things um, because they'll just tell me, you know, you should ask an elder that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do ask young people some things, and I do do focus groups and stuff with them. But most of my, my conversations are with elders and knowledge holders. Honestly, I like old people better than babies. So. <laughs> it's the best. They have such great stories. They have, you know, amazing, sometimes really difficult lives. Um, they're just, they're so, they're so wonderful to me. I'm very, very lucky to, to work with the people that I work with. They're so cool. And they make the best tea, I would say. So. Do you take it with sugar, milk, cream? Yeah, I'm a heathen. I love, give me some cream, give me some sugar. I, <laughs> you know, I'm not too cool. Like, I want it to taste good. Um, so, yeah. Okay. Well, can you give us an idea of what sorts of stories uh, are you hearing from the others? What What are you asking about in terms of knowledge that they have? Yeah, so I'm interested in concepts of identity, mostly gender, but it can be things like age or mm-hmm. social status, things like that. And so I'm interested in what it means to be an Inuvialuit man or woman or someone who exists in between those spaces because that exists now and has existed far into the past. And I want to know, like, who did what jobs um, now and in the past and what do they think um, it meant to be a, a man a thousand years ago? And so sometimes people will tell me stories from their um, their everyday life or their childhood, like an elder, um, Lena Wolke, who's pretty famous uh, where she's from in the Arctic. She uh, and her sisters and her mom are all known to be incredibly good hunters and like really good, good, good shots. Mm-hmm. And um, that's because her dad died when she was young. I'm not even sure. Lena might have been a baby. I'm not sure like what the age she was. But um, her mom had to learn to do everything, the men's job and the women's job and everything. And so um, her mom taught her to be a great hunter. And Lena tells the story about when she entered the target shooting competition at the Winter Jamboree. She entered both the men's and the women's <laughs> target shooting competition and took home both of the prizes. That's much allowed? Much to the like, chagrin of all the men in town, I guess. <laughs> this would have been in, I don't know when this was, maybe 
maybe the 60s. But yeah, Selena loves to tell that story because it shows that even though men are often the hunters, um, women hunt too. And some women can not just, you know, be good hunters, but could be the best hunters. Um, she often likes to say that all the men in town are jealous of her. <laughs> um, so I hear stories like that. And then I also hear um, stories about elders who have already passed. Like they'll tell me about their dadics or their nanics, who are their their grandmothers and their grandfathers. Um, they'll tell me stories that they have told them, which are really interesting. And then also I'll hear um, things that are, are, they're not quite myths or legends, but they're, they're stories about people that they don't actually know. And some of them... Um, have kind of moral stories to them and things like that. So I get a whole range of things. It just depends what is triggered in an elder or an old holder's memory when they look at an artifact or when I ask a question about something. So I try not to like, you know, have rigid interviews, uh, interview questions, um, because I'm interested in what they're interested in. And I want them to tell me what they think I should be writing about and what they think is important to share with youth and with people like me. And do you find that those who have been in residential schools are a little more um, to themselves, don't really open up to you as much? Or is that really a problem that you run into when talking about gender issues? Well, I can't speak for everyone because I only interview elders who want to be part of the project. But I, I would always say that, you know, if you made it through residential school, there's a lot of resilience there. Um, and so... Everyone that I work with who is of a certain age ha- had has been to school, and they have had a variety of experiences, um, some, you know, not so great. And I think there's a lot of resilience there if you um, have been able to survive this long and have a connection still with your culture. So, you know, people will share stories about school, um, but they'll just as easily share stories about things that happened before or after they went to school. So there are, I'm sure, are people who are more reserved because of that. They just aren't necessarily coming um, and interested to be part of the project with me. So can you give us an idea of what life is like up north in, in these communities, um, both for like the people living in, in them year round and mm-hmm. sort of for you as a researcher sort of visiting yeah. for... Being a uh, tourist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Honestly, in a lot of ways, like I've been up, you know, I don't actually know how many times I've been up, but I've been going up for like, let's say six years. Mm-hmm. And I'm still, while I've made connections in town, I'm, I'm obviously, I don't live there. So my experience is that of somebody who comes in and out occasionally. But I think people would be surprised by how modern things are up north. I think people have a lot of I- ideas about what the north is like. And a lot of that comes from this idea of like a static indigenous culture through Canada that we get from mm-hmm. TV and film. And I think most people our age, when we think of the Arctic, we think of like children's TV shows or like Pingu that we saw when we were a kid. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think we have an idea, <laughs> right, of what the Arctic is like. Right. Um, but it's very modern. We have, there's internet and, and Wi-Fi and cellular data. Everybody has cell phones. Um, people are on Facebook a lot. <laughs> Facebook is a digital meeting space for everybody. It's it's really, it's really interesting. Um, but the communities are small, and they're um, primarily indigenous. Where I work most of the time in Nuvik, there's Gwich'in and Inuvialuit, which are two different indigenous groups. But then there are Southerners who've come up north, and there are immigrants from other countries. There's some from a few African nations, um, mm. from parts of Asia. So it's actually interestingly multicultural in some ways. Um, I'm usually there in the summer or the fall time, um, although the fall is not like fall here like it's fully snowy in September (laughs) Um, but yeah in some ways it's really similar you know I I can do a lot of things I can do back home I mean there's no like movie theater so Mm -hmm. you know I know somebody who flew down south to go see 
um, Avengers because they didn't want spoilers. <laughs> or I had a friend who flew down to see the, the last Harry Potter movie because he didn't want to, like, miss it. There's things like that, and food is very expensive in the grocery store. There's only one, like, big grocery store, the North Mart, but there are other places you can get um, food, some other places if you have a car. Yeah, um, you see, like, on the news that there's all these problems with, like, the how much food there mm-hmm. is, the prices of food. Like, what kind of stuff do you generally eat when you go up there? So things have changed a lot since I first started going up there. I The first time I started going up for my PhD, because I also did my master's in the same communities, I brought a lot of things with me because I was like, well, I won't be able to get that up north. But you can't get a lot of things, but you can still get a lot more than you've ever been able to. I think somebody, um, they had, like, they found protein powder last <laughs> summer in one of the one of the stores, <laughs> which is crazy to me because I always bring my own protein powder with me, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but I eat a lot of frozen things because vegetables are incredibly expensive. So you can get flash frozen veggies, which are just as nutritious. They're just, I don't like them as much, <laughs> but they're good. Um, but yeah, meat's expensive, milk's expensive. Um, there's a greenhouse, the Arctic greenhouse in Inuvik, which is great. They have a Facebook page. You can go check mm-hmm. them out. And a lot of people have plots. Um, and so, you know, during certain months of the year, people can grow their own um, fruit, you know, fruit and veg. Well, not really fruit. Veg and, like, herbs and things. And some people have gardens because 24-hour sunlight for a couple months, you do get a lot of things. Right. But, but, yeah, food is really expensive. It can be as bad as you see on the news, and food insecurity is a really big problem. Um, but if people are lucky, they have access to country foods, and they'll be able to go in the land and supplement for themselves. And also just, like, they like country food better, a lot of people. It's, it's better to eat food that, you know, your grandparents used to eat, um, and that has more of a connection to your culture or the land. It's a lot healthier, too. It can be so much healthier. Although I will say muktuk, which is the whale blubber, is, like, like so calorie-dense. You <laughs> cannot eat a lot of that. Well, you could. I wouldn't eat a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah. But have you? I've had some. Mm-hmm. Okay. So last year in September, we were up for a big community gathering where we brought a bunch of elders from all over the settlement region I work in to the high school in Inuvik, which is the town I work out of mostly, to come and do stuff with students, um, high school students over I don't know if it was four days maybe. And so at lunchtime, even though we had a catered kind of lunch with country foods, some of the elders um, whipped up their ulus, which are these semicircular kind of women's knives. And they had muktuk, and they were just cutting the muktuk and feeding it to everybody. Wait, what's muktuk again? So it's the whale blubber. So where whale I work, blubber. it's beluga whale blubber primarily, although in other parts of the Arctic it can be like bowhead whale. So they just had these big slabs of whale blubber that people brought them because people just bring elders food because – it's, you know, respectful to do that. And they were just, you know, 75, 80-year-old women just cutting up muktub <laughs> and handing it out to people. It was How do really you cook great. that? You can cook it. Some people boil it. Um, some people eat it raw. A lot of people eat it, like, half-frozen raw. I'm not sure, like, what the best way is. I'm sure there's there's actually a really big, like, disagreement about whether you should eat it with dip it in soy sauce or an HP sauce. Every- <laughs> sushi. Yeah, everybody has an opinion about it. I've had it both. I will not say which one I like better because okay. I don't want to, you know, get anyone angry with me. But Again, yeah. very diplomatic. Very diplomatic. Listen, I, I don't want to blacklist myself with any of the elders. Well, are there any other sort of traditional country foods or Inuit mm-hmm. foods that you've tried that you, you found really interesting or enjoy? Yeah. I get really lucky because I work with elders and they often um, have lots of country food around. And so over the years, like, I've had a variety of things. But last fall, I was visiting with my um, friends who are elders, Albert and Shirley Elias. Um, and Shirley just kept saying, have you had this kind of country food? No. And she'd bring it up from the freezer. So within a span of 40 minutes, I ate, like, six different country foods. So my favorite is dry fish, which is kind of like a 
it's not fully smoked fish, but it's a, a type of smoking of fish, like char or white fish. Mm-hmm. And so it's really good. It's almost like a fish jerky kind of. Not quite, I don't know how to describe it. Dry fish is really good. Um, you could get um, a type of food that's like meat fat, um, kind of frozen and whipped up. That's really good. Lots of cooked fish. There's caribou, which is called taktu. Um, seal, although I haven't personally had seal yet because that's mm-hmm. easier to get in the kind of coastal communities. Mm-hmm. Um, moose. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm definitely forgetting something. I can't think. And bannock. Lots of bannock, which is just like a either a fried or baked kind of little biscuit thing. Everybody does their bannock differently. Um, <laughs> I make a kind of bannock. I'm sure it's not very good, but yeah. So while we're on the topic of food, this yes. might be a weird question, but do they have their own types of alcohols and liquors and stuff, or do they generally drink the same stuff that's here in Ontario? <laughs> <laughs> Asking for a friend? Yeah, yeah. Good, important <laughs> questions. Um, so as far as I know, there isn't like any kind of, there wasn't any kind of like historical liquor making process in the Arctic at all. That was something that came in with colonialism. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a liquor store in Anuvik, and you can get half of what you could get down here, for example. Um, a lot of wines, a lot of beers. There are, like, breweries in parts of the north. Like, there's a bunch of breweries in the Yukon. And um, there's, like, a microbrewery in the Northwest Territories that's really good. Um, but there's nobody where I work who are making any kind of specific liquors. Um, so not yet, but mm-hmm. maybe. <laughs> Open up some microbreweries over there. <laughs> yeah, honestly. <laughs> so how did you get into um, sort of this area of research? What drew you mm-hmm. to the Arctic? So I was a zoarch, well, I guess I technically still am a zooarchaeologist, which is looking at animal remains in a human context. So what people ate, the livestock or pets they kept, things like that. Um, in the Arctic, because of the permafrost, there's really good preservation. So the faunal remains are better preserved in the Arctic than almost anywhere in the world. And mm-hmm. so it made a lot of sense logically to work in the Arctic. And I was working with a faculty member in my undergrad at McGill who worked in the Arctic. And so I kind of just had the opportunity to do it. Um, and then in my master's, I actually got to go and do fieldwork in the Arctic at a site called Kukbuk, which means big river in Inuvialuktun. And it's this really amazing, big, um, probably the largest Inuvialuit site, maybe the largest Inuit site in the entire Arctic. And it was just a really wonderful experience. And so I think I just was hooked and I made a lot of friends and met a bunch of elders. And I was like, there's nowhere else I want to work. I'm really hoping to continue doing work up in the Western Arctic after my PhD, but we'll see. <laughs> So where did you do your master's and undergrad? I did my undergrad at McGill um, with uh, Professor Jim Savelle, and then I did my master's at University of Toronto with Dr. Max Friesen, um, who are both Arctic archaeologists who are still practicing, but I think they work both in the Eastern Arctic now more. Mm-hmm. And what made you come to Western? I really wanted to work with my supervisor, Lisa Hodgetts, um, Dr. Lisa Hodgetts. She uh, just does the kind of work that I feel very positively about because it, it involves local communities, you know, from start to finish. It isn't just consultation. It's completely involving people from start to finish. And um, I was really lucky to get on this project, the Nubialuit Living History Project, very early on. Um, so I got to be part of it from, you know, the second phase from the start. And I just I wanted to work in a project where I wasn't just digging up people's history, where I was getting to work with local communities and figuring out what they thought was important to learn about. I was, you know, sick of the kind of colonial nature of what archaeology is as a discipline. Even though we're all working on it, I I just, I wanted to make sure I was doing the best I could with the kind of work I was doing. 
So what kind of work are you going to do on this uh, most recent trip that you're going on? So as soon as I get up there, we're doing a on-the-land camp. We're bringing a bunch of high school students out to Ivivik National Park mm-hmm. with one of our partners, Parks Canada. And we're going to be doing... Um, bunch of on-the-land activities. Elders are coming up and they're going to do like fishing and sewing. They're going to be learning like video making skills. Um, I think there's going to be some like journaling and, and some documentary filmmaking happening as well as like some traditional activities um, and some cooking and things. I'm helping out with that. And then after that, I'm working um, with the Univialic Communication Society um, and a guy named Dave Stewart. And we're going to be hopefully filming a bunch of elders to make little video shorts for our webpage, uh, anuvialitlivinghistory.ca, <laughs> by the way. Okay. Um, and we're making these to talk about um, objects and, and you know, kind of gender questions and who, what is a man, what is a Nuvialit man, what do Nuvialit women do, those kinds of things. We're hoping to get that on film through the lens of, like, um, people's loved ones who have passed and the elders they remember. And the cool thing about this is that it's more of an Inuvialuit kind of cultural way to to disseminate this information. We're hoping to have the elders who are the knowledge holders to um, share that knowledge in their own language. Um, so not in English, preferably in their own language, in their own dialect, um, so that students who aren't in the community that the elders are from or who don't even live in the Arctic, because there are Inuvialuit who live all over Canada, they can log on and they can watch elders um, talk about their culture and their history in their own dialect. And then hopefully we'll have subtitles on the bottom. <laughs> so I'm really excited about that. I've never done any kind of filmmaking things, um, but I have talked to people a lot for a living, so I think it'll okay. be okay. <laughs> so other than the elders, do a lot of people still speak the traditional languages? Yeah. So um, like many Indigenous languages, there are not as many speakers as the speakers would like. Um, so Something that's part of the overall like history project that we're trying to work on is getting more language speakers and figuring out ways to help um, integrate that into like curriculums, let's say, or things like that. But there are definitely a lot of language speakers, and I work with a lot of them, and they feel incredibly passionate about their language, and for them, the language is the key to preserving cultural history. So the problem is there's lots of dialects, and it can be difficult. So, And as an outsider, I obviously don't know the best way to do that which is why it's up to our language speakers and our you know, team members to figure out ways to do that. Have you learned any, any words? Yes. The word I use the most is kwainaini, which just means thank you. Okay. <laughs> That's a good one. Mm-hmm. It's just in one. Very Canadian. <laughs> yeah. Well, people are often doing things for me, so I often mm-hmm. have to thank them. And that's only one dialect of thank you, and I'm working on it. But I've been tasked by a lot of the elders I work with um, to use as many Inuvialuktun words in my work as possible, both in my writing and when I'm presenting my research to other academics, um, like as a respectful way, but also like normalizing it. So um, I'm working on it and, you know, I don't think I'll ever be a fluent language speaker, but I'm learning the important words. And at the very least, I'm using any of the words for artifacts when we know what those are. What other type of words do you know? Oh, gosh, you're putting me on the spot here now. Um, I mean, like, the one I use the most is ulu, which is the woman's knife. Um, I don't even know if there is, like, a translation other than woman's knife. Um, I'm trying to think of other objects. Um, Yeah, I don't know. You're putting me on the spot. (laughs) And when you're talking about objects, like, even when you'll be showing them to the elders and Mm -hmm. seeing what they talk about, what kind of objects would you be showing them? So whenever possible, artifacts. Because one of the goals of the Inuvial Living History Project is to make artifacts that are housed in southern institutions like museums, making them more accessible up north. Um, So we physically bring objects up north. So it's often artifacts like the ulu or harpoon heads, 
you know, hair combs, um, little figurines, fishing lures, a lot of these types of things, sewing kits, lots of little bone needles or, or thimbles, things like that. Um, so whenever possible, artifacts. But sometimes we have replicas and we have a really um, great connection with the Prince of Wales Museum in Yellowknife and they often lend us their uh, teaching collection. So they're kind of replica objects that you can play with and touch and hold. And those are great because people, you know, like there's this beautiful dog whip made out of seal skin that some of our knowledge holders have showed me how they crack it. Um, and you couldn't do that with an, an artifact, but you can do it with a teaching collection. So how much longer do you have with this project that you're working on? That's that's a sad question. I'm already feeling pre-nostalgic for this work because oh, this no. is probably my last field season. Okay. Um, it's very expensive to do work in the Arctic. It's more expensive probably to do work in the Arctic than anywhere in Canada. And I've been very lucky. I've been funded by the government and, you know, by sh- the Shirk project that I'm on and things like that. But, you know, at some point you have to stop going up and spending the money on it. Um, so this is probably my last field season. Um and I will be graduating hopefully within a year. But the project itself is going to keep going. It started in 2009 with phase one. Phase two started, I think, last year. And, you know, hopefully it goes on, uh, you know, forever, mm-hmm. as long as it, as it could possibly go on. So my work will be finished soon. But I feel very strongly about continuing to work in the Arctic. I would love to keep working in the Western Arctic. I have, like, personal connections up there that I treasure. Um, but... Also, you know, that's just a skill set that I have that maybe isn't as useful other places. So, you know, I'm hoping to get work up there after. We'll see. How many people are you working up there? Like any other graduate students from Western or other places? So we have one graduate student who is about to finish his master's. So he was up last year. He won't be coming up this year. We have one student, Jason Lau, who's up there right now. Hi, Jason. I'm sure you're going to listen to this. (laughs) (laughs) Um, He was working up there. This is his first full field season. And then our supervisor, Lisa, who's one of the PIs on the project, um, is coming up with us. And she'll be up for part of it. So it's a small team of Western you know, people this year, but we work with Parks Canada, Prince of Wales Northern Heritage Center, um, Simon Fraser, um, and a bunch of Inuvialuit community um, organizations. And so there's lots of team members. There's just only three of us from Western. So once this is all over, do you have any grand plans? Uh, is there maybe a postdoc in your future? <laughs> um, you know, I would love to do a postdoc. I'd love to keep working in cultural heritage. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll see what happens. I'm mostly focused on not just getting my PhD written, but also using some of the stuff that I've learned and making it available online. So not just making these video shorts, but figuring out how to write pieces of them that can slot into the curriculum, for example, for educators. So that kind of stuff is what's on my mind now. But, you know, I'd love to do a postdoc. I'd love to stay in academia, but that's not always possible. So I'm very open to anything as long as I get to work in cultural heritage and I get to work on projects that feel... um, like they're run by indigenous communities themselves. I'm, I'm no longer interested in working in colonial systems. Well, Becky Goodwin, uh, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for coming out to GradCast to share yeah. your experience and your work with us. Yeah. It's been a pleasure to have you. Thank you guys so much for having me. And if someone has any questions or wants to uh, learn more about your work or uh, where you work and the people you work with, how would they do that? So we have a project Facebook page that's pretty active. Um, it's Inuvialuit Living History on Facebook. You can find us. Um, there's lots of posts on there that you look at, and you can also, you know, message us on there, and we'll answer whatever we can. So this has been your weekly GradCast. I'm Eamon Chen, and I was joined with my co-host. Nicole Poznov. GradCast is a production of the Society of Graduate Students at the University of Western Ontario. We broadcast on 
Radio Western CHRW every Tuesday at 6 p.m. You can find us online at www.gradcast.ca. You can also get in touch with us through email at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can also find us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, basically wherever you get podcasts. Lovely archive, and there's plenty of episodes for you to go through. Stick with SOGS! The Gradcast theme tune has been composed for us by Matthew Becker.